Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. All right, welcome back everybody to the show. Today on the podcast, we are going to explore the anthropological perspective on non-traditional models of relationships and sexuality. And I'm very excited to have Dr. Justin Hines on the podcast today. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Madeline. Thanks for having me. I'm actually very excited about this conversation because not everybody knows that I'm actually, my undergrad is in anthropology. Uh, and to be actually interviewing an anthropologist is pretty <laughs> cool in my books, uh, cause I don't really get to talk about anthropology really mm-hmm. very much. So this is like, this is very exciting for me. Oh, well, awesome. Let's, uh, let's get into it. Yeah. So probably the best place for us to start is people like, what is anthropology and why are you guys all excited about it? Um, <laughs> You know, what's what? how do you define it to people when they ask? So what I used to get that question a lot when I would tell my family that I'm studying anthropology instead of a real career path. And basically it's the study of humans, human society, human origins. Uh, and when you have kind of that broad kind of scope to look at, it's everything from the rise of language to the rise of culture to our prehistoric past to our closest living relatives. Um, everything archaeology would fall into that sort of stuff. And then, so anthropology is kind of broken up into four main disciplines. You have um, social and cultural anthropology. You have anthropological linguistics. You have archaeology, and then you have physical anthropology. And physical anthropology is where. I kind of gravitated towards um, because that would take in th- things like medical anthropology, primatology, um, those types of areas were where, you know, in all the courses that I took where I found the, m- the most sort of parity with what my interests were. Uh, and then focusing specifically on non-human primates was where I really kind of found my groove in and where everything kind of took off. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I have to say that... Uh, my two favorite were certainly um, like cultural anthropology, mm. just like trying to understand how different cultures mm-hmm. set themselves up and interact and socialize and, you know, set up their models of existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then medical anthropology to me, just trying to understand um, like wellness mm-hmm. and illness and dis ease mm-hmm. um, and how different cultures were dealing with that that you know perhaps didn't have access to our current mm, mm-hmm. you know medical technologies and mm-hmm. advancements you know like how are they dealing with things um which you know I feel um, you know kind of blended well with you know me going into Absolutely. you know physiotherapy and yeah. like I feel like I can bring a different perspective because of that broadened view of humans yeah no, that's uh, absolutely. I mean, medical anthropology is such a big field too, right? And and it, it when you take a look at how our bodies have developed over thousands of years to get to the point of where we are right now, and to look at things like how nutrition has improved things, how medicine has improved things, and and but also taking a look at groups of people who who currently live in the modern world but don't have the same sort of access to modern amenities. How do they deal with the same sorts of issues that the modern human body is going through, whether it's environmental stresses or emotional stresses or physical stresses, all those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah it's, and it's, it's interesting to yeah. see how they approach it. Um, yeah. And I think that that makes, and I can only really speak for myself, um, and maybe you feel similarly, but I feel like having studied anthropology has given me a very broadened perspective Mm. on how I look at things in the sense of, um, you know, like in order to study a culture, you sort of have to try your best to put aside your personal Mm -hmm. biases and your personal judgments because you're there observing 
to make notes about what you're seeing and hearing and trying to really understand where that mm-hmm. person's coming from. And I think that um, offers a lot of openness. Uh, and certainly for me, being a pelvic floor physio, and I'm talking about, you know, people's sex life, mm-hmm. and I'm talking about, you know, people's relationships and how they see their own bodies. And I mean, I hear and see a lot of things. And I feel, for the most part, um, like... I'm objective and if there's a moment where I feel like uh, something comes up or mm-hmm. I feel like I'm triggered or there's like a personal bias, mm-hmm. I feel like, okay, I can recognize that and then try to dissect yeah. it to understand why do I have it? Yeah. Because likely it's some sort of cultural norm or yeah. something that I've been taught or told that may or may not be um, you know, applicable to the situation for me to be feeling that way. That, that self-awareness is really important as an anthropologist, like as a student, I found that uh, you really had to, especially in my cultural anthropology, my cultural anthropology professors, and when you read the case studies, that personal bias is something that you have to be aware of. And when you're making conclusions and when you're making observations, and there's always going to be value judgments that are passed when in your interpretation of result or events and things like that, to be able to recognize that you know, it's colored by your personal experiences and your personal culture. And even on the primate side of things, you know, my my primate my primatology professors would talk about how, you know, when we're describing when we're doing behavioral studies with primates, to be careful in the language that we use. Like, are they happy? Are they sad? Are they angry? Because these are you know, we're anthropomorphizing, we're projecting human emotions on animals who don't communicate in the same way that we do, that don't necessarily see the world in the same way that we do. I mean, physically, their, their vision is different or their sensory, um, you know, the way that they take into the world, whether it's by sight or touch or smell or taste, is all different because it's a different sort of... So to be to put, to, to, to project that like, oh, they look like they're really happy. Yeah. They look content, right? Yeah. Like there's, and so, so I think anthropologists specifically, if if they've they've trained well or, or or they've had good mentors, are very aware of that. And I think that sometimes that makes us a little neurotic in that we're constantly trying to like, you know, oh, I don't want to put my value on this, but yeah, I, yeah, but yeah, but yeah. at some point you do have to. Your values are going to shape your conclusions. I think you just can't be blinded by the fact that that's happening, right? Yeah, you, you know, if you stayed up up front, like, yeah. okay, these may be some of my personal biases, like we're perhaps doing right now is saying that our personal biases for yeah. this topic of yeah. conversation yeah. Is, that, is that we are able to look at different topics and aka in air quotes, mm-hmm. controversial topics to right. some, we're able to look at it and go, okay, let's just try to step back and try to understand um, versus putting our judgments um, into those conversations, right? Like, I feel like we can have more open conversation yeah. without it being like, oh, that was offensive, it's, right? It, it's tricky to study your own culture because when you study a culture that is so completely different from the one that you were raised in or that you grew up in, it's easy to see those differences. Oh, we do it this way, they do it that way. Uh, the reason I can I can make that distinction is because I grew up like this, they grew up like that. But when you study your own culture or phenomena that are affecting the where you live and you know the traditions that you're used to, that's even harder because because you don't always realize that you're applying your own cultural bias to because you're blind to it because yeah, it's yeah. just normal. Like if you celebrate Christmas, the idea behind, you know, the the food and the presents and Santa Claus and all that sort of stuff, like that's just normal. But if you imagine somebody who's never even heard of Santa Claus, how weird it must be to see that we eat a giant bird and we put stockings out and some magical man spoiler alert, Santa Claus, right, coming into the into the house and all that. Yeah. But like, you know, all these sorts of things. It would be really strange to somebody who's not raised in that in that culture. But, you know, we just grow up knowing that that that's just that's just part of what it is right? right and when you take a step back and you examine that you can see it for the kind of strangeness that i always had i had a professor who told me like when you approach when you approach these sorts of things pretend like you're an alien from another planet and really try and to put as much detail you don't know as anything possible. you don't know yeah. what a phone is you don't know yeah. what coffee is you don't know what a car is you don't know what all those things are and so describe it as if 
you don't know what anything is. And if you do that, then you can try and and, and eliminate those those personal biases that you might have in in that, that you would bring to that conversation. Yeah. Uh, so we are obviously, you know, exploring for the purpose of this podcast, uh, non-traditional models of relationships and sexuality. Um, and of course, you know, this topic, as we move further into this uh, <laughs> podcast, you know, requires an open mind. You know, we're, we're not saying one way that is better than mm-hmm. any other. We're simply having a conversation of things that we have learned, researched, observed, seen, read, heard, and we're just having a discussion mm-hmm. about that. So just to be kind of, our disclaimers we're not you know saying one model is better than the other we're simply acknowledging that there is more than yeah, one way to absolutely. do something yeah. and i feel like you know a big thing for people is that they feel like they're alone mm-hmm. right if you don't fit into the cultural norm you're mm-hmm. somehow you know outcast or yeah. there's something wrong with you or and, and so we really want to explore that there are many different ways to think about relationships and sexuality Mm -hmm. sexuality um so you know if you're going to be listening to this conversation you know come in with an open mind and you know we're we're, you know not trying to be offensive to anybody um and that's my that's my disclaimer um (laughs) so before we get into that topic you know how let's just talk about like what is a traditional model Versus like a non-traditional model. Let's just kind of like define what we're talking about before we jump into that. So if we're talking about like a traditional relationship model, I think what most people think of would be a monogamous model where there are two people, regardless of their gender, but two people who only interact with each other to the exclusion of everybody else. And then a non-traditional model would be pretty much... Everything else, right? Anything that's not that. I think that's what's so challenging about this and what's challenging for people to understand or to reconcile with this is that there's one way to do monogamy successfully, be with one person until you're not with that person anymore. And there you go. Like, you've done it. There's a hundred thousand million different ways where, you know, every single combination of people will have things that work or don't work for them. And that would all be under that umbrella of like, a non-monogamy, non-monogamous model, right? right? I think the one that jumps to most people's mind when they think of non-monogamy would be like bell bottoms and and mutton chops and seventies like key party swinger kind of thing. Right. And it's a lot more in the modern day here in two thousand and twenty. It's it's a lot more nuanced than 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 that quote swinger model that people think of i think i mean and i'm guilty of that as well when when i first started learning about this and 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 understanding all these different kinds of relationship models that was where my bias went it was like oh well if you're not monogamous then you must be a swinger like that that that's the only other option right right and, yeah and it's so much more complicated than that uh this just kind of came to my mind uh literally right now <laughs> is on facebook is there not an option for in an open relationship? I don't know. I think there is. There probably is. I imagine there is because there's so many gender options now that are available for you to list. I'm sure there are. It used to just be like in a relationship. Or it's like complicated, single, single. Widowed. Yeah, separated, divorced. Uh, that, that's a... We should, yeah, we I, I, check I, that I'll out. have to check it out. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure... There is an option for that, and I, and and anyways, we're talking about that. That's so like, that's flying a big flag. Though, what is right? that? Yeah, right. I, yeah, I think I think there would be it would be you'd be opening yourself up to a lot of questions if you were to put something like that out there, like open relationship. Everybody's gonna have their own interpretation of what that means, and yeah, you gotta. I, I, yeah, I'd be curious to see if that's there because that that's. Yeah, that'd be an interesting one. Yeah, no, I'm just, and and that's just it. You know, what, you know, what could that, you know, what could that mean? And is there anything from our cultural, you know, prehistory, I shouldn't say prehistory, but, you know, I'm thinking more like nomadic tribes and, you know, um, hunter-gatherer societies. Like, is there anything in the past that might help us understand these, like, open relationship non-traditional models there are there are cultures today 
that openly practice a relationship model that is not um, that is not monogamous. Uh, there's a there's a concept in anthropology called uh, participle paternity, where these are groups of people who believe that an offspring is the sum of many parts. So you will have this is very common in South American, like uh, what we would consider hunter gatherer nomadic um, communities, right? Of which there or, are or small group small group people, right? Yeah, like they're yeah. not. I mean. Sure, in cities there are lots of people that practice non-monogamy, but yeah. but these are people like if you're thinking about like a tribe in Brazil, you know, this th- these are right. the ki- these yeah. are the kinds of organizations of people. So they're they're living in modern times, but they're not living with modern amenities. And yes. and and in countries like Brazil, they're I mean, up until now that might change, but there are very strong um, laws in the government to allow uncontacted people to remain uncontacted. Like that's, they, they might not even know that the state of Brazil exists, but they're protected under the laws that allow them to exist without knowing that the state exists. Right. Right. Okay. Things are changing in Brazil under the current, current administration there, but generally For speaking, right now, that's yeah. the way it so, is. So, 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 and some of these, 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 uh, hunter gatherer nomadic people have had anthropologists study them and there's very famous long-term case studies that have been done there. And quite a few of them practice this participle paternity model, basically where there is, you know, like if you are a woman and you want to have an offspring, you want your offspring, your child to have the, um, the greatest set of characteristics. So if you want your child to be an excellent hunter, then you would have sex with the best hunter in the group. And if you wanted your child to be the best at making a shelter, then you would, you would have sex with the best shelter maker or the, the person who knows all about the herbs and medicines or, you know, the best, the best person at catching fish or the best tool maker or whatever it is. And, and then when you have um, kind of put all the, ingredients together that you want then you will have a baby right so it's so meaning they would not just it's not like i want my child to be the best hunter and like that's it it's like i want them to be a good hunter and no herbs and no this meaning they may have sex with three or four different members of the community could be could be be multiples and 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 their belief because they don't understand about about ovulation and menstrual yeah. cycles. I mean, they do. Obviously, they know what happens, but they're not going to have the same um, scientific understanding of it as we do because it's going to be part of their culture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like it'll be a cultural understanding as opposed to a medical understanding. Yes. Right. Or biological understanding. And so, you know, in their mind, they will become pregnant when all of those ingredients, whatever is necessary to make that child, have come together. We know in like a Western medicine sort of side of things that, you know, if, you know, the woman is ovulating and sperm is in the right spot at the right time and and, and is successful at getting to the egg and breaking through the barrier and doing all that sort of stuff and the egg implants, then a child is going to be born. It's going to have no bearing on how many times that woman has had sex with with various men. It's just going to be the timing of the sex with a particular man of of sperm that's of the right quality and whatever, right? Um, But the offshoot of that is that paternity is uncertain. Yes. Right? And so what ends up happening is all those men play a role in the raising of that child. And I think that is the biggest sort of contrast if we look at our society, which is based around a monogamous sort of model in general. Yeah. That difference between, you know, that having that certainty of paternity is one of the main reasons monogamy exists right because of wealth distribution and a whole bunch of other things well the i mean isn't it really more so when we started like the industrial like when we oh no not even industrial agriculture earlier agriculture that's it which is like forty thousand ish years ago so if you think if you think of modern humans and our biology has been set for longer than forty thousand years for sure probably a couple hundred thousand years right if you look at you know, Neanderthals and Cro-Magnon Man and all those earlier either, I mean, this is where taxonomy comes in. Yes. So where they're, I mean, just a little offshoot. If, you know, the scientific, the taxonomic name for humans is Homo sapiens, right? Homo genus sapiens is the species. Um, Everybody knows about the Neanderthals or Neanderthals, right? Yes. Um, And some people will put Neanderthals as Homo neanderthalensis, though a different species to humans, or Homo sapiens neanderthalensis which would be like a subspecies of humans right um 
and the implication for that being that we could reproduce and create offspring and that we probably outcompeted Neanderthals, um, but they're still incorporated into our like Genetic, global gene yeah. pool kind of thing, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but if you look at that, then we're talking about a biological evolution that takes place over at least more than 40,000 years. Whatever the number is, it's longer than, it's longer than we've been practicing agriculture. Yeah. And when agriculture came around, what ended up happening is you had people settling into one area yeah. and accumulating land and accumulating possessions and, and wealth and all these sorts of things around that. And you, as the landowner wanted to make sure that you were only passing on everything that you have obtained to uh, an offspring that you could be certain of. And the only way to be certain that this is your offspring is if your partner is only having sex with you so that the children that she bears are yours. Are yours. And I'm right. talking about this in a in a like a patriarchal sense because in general well, the men were the farmers, the women's kept house. I mean, hunter gatherers were a little bit different, right? But very much different. Uh, but that was that that was the overarching, yeah. uh, you know. And we're still battling that overarching <laughs> model, yeah. you know, to this yeah, day, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but having said that, because. You know, when we think about non-traditional models, it kind of sounds like, oh, well, the guy gets to do whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so let's just maybe put into context that there are different cultures yes. where the women absolutely. are absolutely in charge of and the initiators of mm -hmm. their own sexual experiences. So it wasn't necessarily the men no. making the decisions no, it was no, women were granted women within different cultures were able to decide for themselves and were not shamed there was, for that there's a lot behavior. of there's a lot of cultural beliefs you see this across, across a lot of um pre-modern societies where like the goddess mythology that the fact that women can create life gives them enormous power and i think it was once men realized that they had something to do with that that things started to change and they had to kind of like hang on a second here like like we're part of it so we're going to control access outcomes all these sorts of things and you know it kind of moves up from there and we're obviously still battling that today with this with this inequality between between men and women in a variety of different aspects of modern life yeah yeah um so, having said that, you know, we're talking uh, uh, about being able to have certainty, um, you know, and we have sort of our possessions and how do we kind of control that. How does, you know, can, can a non-traditional model work in modern day society? I like, think it can. I mean, I don't think we're going to be practicing partable paternity you know, Probably every, not. No. every, you know, all over the place. Um, you know, you want the fastest guy or the guy who can fix the cars the best or all these kind of things. I don't, I don't think it's going to work like that. Um, but yeah, I'll, I definitely, I think it can, I think it can work. Um, it takes a lot more communication and a lot more openness and a lot more self-reflection. I think, um, and I, and I don't want people to think that, that because we're having a conversation around non-monogamy that we think monogamy and I don't want to speak for you, yeah. but uh, in my case, I think monogamy is a, is an, is a completely valid relationship model. Absolutely. Uh, I, I just see in, in the world that because it's the default position for so many people, there's never any conversations around what it actually looks like right. and, and what it actually means. Like, is a successful relationship just until one of you dies and then that's, that's, that's cool? Yeah. Um, or, or is there something to learn out of a relationship, even one that ends? I mean, there's lots of people I'm sure in your life that you know that are like serial monogamists, right? Yeah. They, they, they practice monogamy until they're bored or, or indifferent or attracted to somebody else. And then they just end the first relationship and start a second relationship. Well, I mean, I, I would think that our divorce rates may have something to say sure. a little bit about well, that. And look, and look at, look at second divorce rates, right? Like, yeah. like you see people who are, are married, like that have been divorced twice. They generally don't wait as long for that second divorce as they do that first one. The first one, usually there's kids in a house and all that other sort of stuff. And then they end that relationship and they start another one. And then when they, when they realize like, okay, this isn't working and they're not, that's it. They're done. Right. Because there's just, there's no reason to, to and, go, and to go through And it could have been about, you know, 
desire, fantasy, doing something different. I mean, there's a number of different reasons. Mm -hmm. And so in our current model, it's like, well, it would be better for me to just end it here so that I can explore this other part without... Well, because that's more accepted. Right. It's easier to take, you know, to go to to go to a family event with one person one year and then go to another event with a new person and say, oh, well, you know, we broke up. We broke up and now this is my new partner. It's very different to like go to Thanksgiving and Christmas with two different people. And yeah. be like, no, no, I'm, I'm still with the first person. <laughs> yeah. I'm just today yeah, I want to yeah, be with yeah. this person. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So. It, yeah, it's it's certainly <laughs> well, we're talking about, you know, outside cultural right. norms, but that's not to say that that isn't a possibility for sure it's just not as widely accepted and i wonder you know if if people had more um because i you know i think i was i think it came out of the book sex at dawn Mm -hmm. um they were talking yeah very good book um very much an anthropology Mm -hmm. look at Lots of things, biology, mm-hmm. cultural, like, and everything centered around um, relationships and sex. And I think he, the author is a he, right? Uh, it's a, uh, I guess they're husband and wife. Yeah, okay, Christopher so both, Ryan okay. and, and Casilda Jethy, Jetha, something like that. Yeah. Chris Ryan is the one that is generally the face of the book. He's out doing most of the promotion gotcha. and, okay. and most of the interviews and stuff. And I, like, I, there was one part in their um, discussion where they were sort of saying, like, you know, why aren't we having discussions? Like, you know, couples will go to therapy mm-hmm. and will, you know, perhaps be looking to try to exist within a certain model. And it's like, okay, let's try to figure out how to make you exist in this model for, you know, a little bit longer and or, you know, for the rest of your lives mm-hmm. when I, I, I just, it was just an interesting perspective that not everybody's open to having those discussions. And even the, the two people who are there for the counseling are not open to even remotely talk about that. And if at the end of the discussion, they both decide, yeah, you know what, this that's not a model we want to, like, that's not what we want to do for our relationship and our sex life. Like, okay, cool. Like, let's figure out how to make this model. But the discussion isn't even happening, mm-hmm. right, around that. And it's certainly not happening in the discussion around like adultery right well and and this is the question that's posed this is almost kind of like what the thesis of the book is is that like if monogamy is quote natural yes or quote what we're supposed to do because of biology and culture and whatever why do so many people struggle with it right why do so many hope high profile politicians athletes um, celebrities uh, risk everything, their power, their wealth, their status over an extra marital affair. Why do so many religions have the death penalty for adultery? Yeah. If biologically we are supposed to be monogamous. And this might this might be jumping a little bit ahead, yeah, but, but that's okay. when we start talking about where primatology, why primatology, which is what I studied, is what yeah. my, my graduate degrees were in, why that is included in anthropology rather than in biology is because of what the study of our non, of, of non-human primates, of our, of our primate um, relatives, for yes. lack of a better word, what they can tell us about our development and our evolution as humans. Right, right. Uh, when I tried to explain to my family, uh, my uh, half of my background is Italian and I have, you know, my family came over from Italy on my, in my mom's generation. And when I went to my nonna, my, my Italian grandmother, and she said, why do you want to, you know, why why do you want to be a monkey doctor? And I said, well, no, I, like, it's not what I, it's not, I'm not like, I'm not like a monkey veterinarian. Yeah. You know, like, I just, I studied this. She's like, but you go to school for all this time. You could, you know, like, tell me what's wrong with my foot. And I'm like, yeah. no, 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 that's not. And she's like, but you think we came from, from gorillas? And I think that's, that's, um, that's a misunderstanding a lot of people have around evolution. Yeah. That, that, like it's like a Planet of the Apes style evolution that if we just leave chimpanzees long enough, eventually they'll end up as, as humans. humans. Yeah. But that's not the way evolution works. Yeah. All the non-human primates that we see, all the great apes and the lesser apes and the monkeys and the persimmons and all the different classes of primates, 
are that we see today are the results of a concurrent evolution that there was a split at some point right and and what we see now is the end result of that journey on different paths to get here which means you cannot that there's no way that that a gorilla in 10,000 years is going to look like a human because humans in 10,000 years aren't going to look like humans. They're going to look some, you know, most of us aren't going to have wisdom teeth anymore and maybe our baby toes are going to disappear or, you know, like there's going to be these changes in our biology that are going to be the result of all those previous changes. And, and it's not possible that, that, like that the evolution is not linear. It doesn't go from like, you know, like a, a lemur, then eventually lemurs become monkeys, and eventually monkeys become chimpanzees, and eventually chimpanzees becomes gorillas, and it, that that's not it's not yeah. a linear sort of yeah, you know yeah, yeah. single track like that. I think that was the you know the biggest misunderstanding. And I mean, my gra- my my nana grew up in like Sicily in the nineteen twenties and thirties, right? Like yeah. you know this yeah. is, is a very different time. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So sure. that was that was her kind of understanding of that. But I think that when we take it back to this topic, what we can learn. From not the relationship models, because again, that would be us anthropomorphizing, yeah, 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 yeah. but the 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 social groupings of our closest primate relatives, primate cousins, can tell us about what was common in our in our common ancestor. Right. What the, the the species that existed before the split. Yes. And that's yes. where primatology fits into into anthropology, because if we see something in chimpanzees let's say then the assumption would be that that was a trait that our common ancestors shared and if we see something in chimpanzees that we don't see in humans then that is something that developed after the split from the common ancestor the trick is is that archaeologists haven't like we know that you hear the term missing link yes we haven't found that missing link right we find things that are immediately and we keep going further and further back and closer and closer to the split but we don't have it and it's not clear that we would ever be able to identify in the fossil record the species that is the split yeah like right that has that, that has traits that are common in both chimpanzees and humans like you hear people talk about oh we're you know we're nine chimpanzees share 97 98 percent of our dna like, wow that's that's shocking yeah but oak trees share 70 percent of our dna because we're all carbon based right yes like yes. so it's misleading yeah it's yeah. misleading when you hear those those numbers there um but that one or two percent difference makes a huge difference. So look at a chimpanzee versus a human. Look at an oak tree compared to a human, right? Right. So, yeah. so those small differences are actually quite major. But what we can look at in terms of of of, of community models, or you know, relationship models, for lack of a better word, is what do we see in our closest living relatives? And so. Generally speaking, in, in primatology, you have your very primitive primates would be your prosimians. Those are the ones, lemurs and things like that, that live in Madagascar yes. primarily. And you get some um, prosimians that live in Africa. You've got your New World monkeys, which would be the primates that we find in like Central and South America. Yeah. And then we have our Old World monkeys, which are Asian and African um, monkeys. And then we have the lesser apes and the great apes. And the lesser apes and the great apes are the ones that are probably like on that tree are the ones that split closest to us. So your lesser apes would be your gibbons and siamangs. Um, and then your your greater apes would be uh, the greater stature ones. So chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, orangutans. Yes. With bonobos, also sometimes called pygmy chimpanzees, being the closest to us. Okay. Then chimpanzees, then gorillas, then orangs, then gibbons and siamangs so we would look if we want to look at what our common ancestor most likely the traits that our common ancestor most likely had the bonobos are going to be the ones that are going to be the, the closest, closest. Okay. To, to that sort of thing and when you start looking into bonobos it gets wild in, in terms of, <laughs> yeah. of what bonobos do and how they live and how different they are even though they look very similar to chimpanzees um how different their social interactions are compared to compared to chimpanzees so. yeah so n- not monogamous no yeah. no there's only <laughs> there's only a handful of of um prime or of mammals that engage in non-reproductive sex um dolphins are one okay. of them and then bonobos are one of the other ones and they use sexual encounters both male male female female male female um, as ways to diffuse tension, to um, resolve conflict, 
to strengthen bonds, um, to to establish new communities. Uh, and when you look at that and go, wow, that's really interesting because if you think of that, humans do that in their own way. I was literally <laughs> just thinking like, okay, and this may be, you know, the first thing that kind of pops into my head is like the fairy tale stories, but um, <laughs> but I, I, just thinking back in the past, like how different countries would marry, sure, yeah, right, to and establish, yeah. establish new community, yeah. establish bonds and relationships, yeah. yeah, and so we were using relationships and sexuality as a way of doing more than just reproducing. We were. <sighs> We were also, I mean, if you talk, if you look back to that sort of time frame, we're also, you know, women were property back then, right? And so you would, you would ship off your daughter, niece, yeah. granddaughter, whatever, yeah. to another country, territory, village, whatever, to establish a bond, and then she would become the property of that new family or that new patriarchy yeah. and stuff like that. But it's the same. It's a similar sort of concept. And where, and this is this is one of the things I loved about in that book was that if you, again, going back to like monogamy is the default position, monogamy is natural, or, or is it, the only primate in those in the, the most closest relatives that practices monogamy are the gibbons and the siamangs. And they are the least genetically related to us and the furthest back in the split, which means that if you follow it back, monogamy was a position of a common ancestor many, many branches ago. But since that branch some other version of a social structure has come about. Um, if you take a look at bonobo specifically, yeah. um, you don't find you don't find that same sort of community model. Gorillas are they have a harem model, so you have a dominant male, the silverback, right, and then he has a group of females. Um, and uh, orangutans are solitary; they only come together to mate. Um, males have big territories that females exist in, and then when when the females are receptive, then they mate. So you and then and then chimpanzees have um, have a model, a fission fusion model, where um, the offspring of the females stay in the group, and then um, the, the 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 other ones are, are pushed out to establish new groups or move into other areas. And so none of those fit with the way we as humans kind of organize. Yeah. Except for the bonobos. Because right. if you think about the way bonobos kind of interact with each other, how many people who have wanted somebody to like them have hooked up with somebody, right? Maybe if I, you know, kiss this person, they'll like me a little bit better, right? right. Or uh, if you wanted to establish an alliance or a relationship with somebody, um, you know, physical affection can do that in a way that words maybe are not capable of doing that. Right? No judgment. Yeah. No yeah. no yeah. shame or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Just fact. That's just the way just, it is. Just, right? just an observation. <laughs> just an observation. Just a factual observation <laughs> that right. we're writing down on a piece of paper as we're yeah. studying this. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's uh, it was one that was a big section of the book that you know these light bulb moments were going off for me, and I was like, oh yeah. And then Chris Ryan starts talking about things like testicular volume and penis size versus body mass and you know sperm wars sperm wars sperm competition all of this sort of stuff even just the shape of the male penis and what it's designed to do and you know female copulatory vocalizations and and the fact that human males have a refractory period but human females do not have a refractory period what's the evolutionary yeah. benefit of what that? does that mean just so, in case somebody's sure. like what are so you so refractory saying? period is a period of rest <laughs> yes um before you're capable of doing something again so if we're thinking about in a sexual context it's the you know the male having an erection ejaculating and then losing the erection for some period of time before they can achieve erection again and then continue on to doing that sort of stuff yes Females don't. Females can orgasm and have continue having sex if they feel like it. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be there's going to be ex there's going to be exceptions to all of that. Yeah. But there's nothing biological that prevents a female from from having sex with one person and then finishing that act and then immediately having sex with another person. Whereas with men, 
that's it, not always going to be the case. Exactly. In the majority of cases, it's not going to be the case. Yeah. And there's hormone releases and things like, you know, prolactin in males that makes males sleepy after that. Like, wh what's the evolutionary benefit of a, of, a, of, a, of a dude getting, you know, getting sleepy and passing out ha after having sex and his female partner being able to go ahead and have sex again and now her first partner is asleep so the next dude can kind of get in there and 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 compete and the best sperm will win that competition there the, the shape of the male penis is actually plunger shape yeah why would that be the case unless you're there to pull out whatever sperm might have already been there right? ah, yeah and, well, and they release different chemicals they that, do to, that, to try to kill any sperm if you that think might be there. if you think you're the first <clears throat> And this happens at a subconscious level. It's not a conscious yeah, thing. Yeah. But if you believe you're the first one there, at the end of the ejaculation, the, the chemistry of the ejaculate will change to something that will change the pH and impede the passage of sperm behind it. Yeah. Whereas if you feel like somebody else has been there, yeah. then you will, again, the ejaculate chemistry will change to something that will attack what might already be there. And that's a biological thing yeah. happening, right? Like like you said, it's it, not this conscious. Is not, this is not a conscious it's thing. It's not conscious. And there have been studies, there have been studies where they have looked at this and they've looked at the chemistry and like, this is documented. Like Kinsey did a whole bunch of these sorts of studies out there, some groundbreaking stuff. Masters and Johnson did a bunch of these types of studies. And I think really once you got into the kind of 1950s and 60s, that was when like human sexuality, from a male perspective, for yeah. the most part, there was a lot more interest in, in how this sort of stuff works. And if you think about from an evolutionary perspective, like why would that, why would sperm wars be useful? Would be, uh, you know, and I don't want to say survival of the fittest, but some, you know, yeah. certain genetics. Uh, want to get through, and, yeah. and that is, you know, and it allows for genetic diversity, yeah. especially in if we're talking about like small nomadic tribes, yeah. you, you want you want genetic diversity. Um, Hence the cultural exchange of, of people leaving one village and going to another. Never mind, you know, you have. So, is it a chicken or egg sort of thing? Is it the genetic diversity that led to um, interchange of members of different communities, or? was the offshoot of interchange of people moving from one community to the other that led to a better genetic diversity. Like, well, I don't know how much of this well, is... Well, we're social it, beings, so, yeah. you know, I... But, I, th but I, I, I think that there would be, certainly, you know, if you have a narrow genetic pool, you increase your risk of any kind of genetic defects in that pool, right? And if you have a diverse genetic pool, then the risk of those genetic defects defects decrease De decreases yeah um but, which would pose a lot of issue in a nomadic small group tribe that has no access to medical things right so from an evolutionary perspective that even, would have been, that would not have been advantageous no and even the most isolated human communities still have interactions with other members of the same community like other villages down the river or wherever yeah, it is yeah. so there's always that could be that interchange but how much of that how much of our culture is driven by our biology or how much our biology is driven by our culture yeah. i think they're inter i think they're intertwined yeah. um and they're going to be certain things they're going to reinforce you know if this particular cultural model ends up with better quality offspring that are able to pass on their genetic material to the next generation, then that's going to reinforce that social model. Yeah. Like if you have a, a, a group of people that don't have any contact with any members outside of that community, uh, eventually that community is going to die off. Yeah. You need new blood, you know, air quotes, yeah. to keep that community viable. Um, the question is how much genetic diversity you need and, you know, what and kind would of it make sense in our biology and in our hormones and, you know, all of that, like it would make sense that there would be a biological drive for us to be attracted to other people. Like if I'm in one community and like we need genetic, you know, we need genetic diversity, like it would be really hard if I was never going to be attracted to another person again, because then I wouldn't want to engage in so there is i feel like there there is certainly biology behind you know what attracts us and at what time and like there's been so much work that looks at what is it about attraction like you know why there's why there's such a um a stereotype of the older financially successful man of means partnering with the young beautiful woman and what that means the woman is looking for 
a good provider, somebody that could protect her and 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 provide for her offspring. And the man is looking at this 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 woman and these characteristics that she might have, you know, waist to hip ratio, um, you know, secondary sexual characteristics like you know, breasts and lips and things like yeah. that as a, a, a good potential maker of offspring, right? Yeah. And 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 we see that in the modern day, you know, something as simple as lipstick. Yeah. Right. The redness. You know, they're very popular that, what was it, Chanel that came out with that red lipstick originally, yeah. right? That that red lipstick, why so many men find that attractive is because in our brains, that extra redness shows, is, is what we would see as a flush in the lips, right? Yeah. And that flush in the lips, according to these like evolutionary biologists, yeah. makes us think about the other part of the female anatomy that also has lips. Right. You know, the labia, okay. right? Yeah. And that yeah. sort of, but you're making that unconscious connection between that um and and so there we we do and i mean humans are unique in the fact that in the animal world it's generally the male of the species if you think of birds specifically it's generally the male of the species that has all of these accents and and ways to attract a female you know a lot of female bird of one species tend to be fairly drab and plain and a lot of males being extremely colorful the the biggest example that most people would be familiar with would be looking at peacocks the yeah. massive train in the male peacock versus the v- relatively drab brownness of the peahen yes and you know but in human society it's kind of flipped you think of all the things that women generally do to attract men consciously yeah. or unconsciously yes and compare it to what men do in comparison put on a nice suit Get a decent haircut. Make sure your put nails are clean. Yeah, some, some cologne. Smell a little yeah. bit nice and fun. But you think yeah. of what women do in terms of manicures, pedicures, makeup, hair, fashion, all these kinds of things that that women do. It's a complete reversal of of what we see pretty much everywhere else in the animal kingdom. We, I don't. I can't think of any examples of where the female of the species does what the female humans do to, to attract, attract the mate. The mate. Yeah. yeah. I want to note something uh, for our ladies um, that's that I, I discovered, and I think it's it's really cool going along the lines of that we don't have a refract- refractory. Did period. I say that correctly? Yeah, that's right. Uh, period meaning like we can keep going and we can continue. We can have multiple orgasms. Like who doesn't want well, to have and, that? And female in general, um, women. I'm talking about human women are are way more vocal. In there, that's that female vocal, uh, copulatory vocalizations. What is versus men? Men generally tend to be much. I mean, quieter. You yeah. don't look at porn as your example of the thing. Right? Yeah, but, that's not a good. But example. but in yeah. general, female like women are generally way more vocal during sex than men. And again, what's the evolutionary? Like, why would you do that? Well, you've got a man that's refractor that's in his refractory period. You've been making these noises, so the other dudes in the area know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, and they're he, like, now, "Hey, I the want first guy's sleepy, yeah. and the next guy gets in, right?" Like, so sorry, going to your refractory um, thing. Yeah, no. So, like, I just want to note for women how cool our biology is. Just for a moment, uh, you know, to move away from the penis. But um, so, first and foremost, can have multiple orgasms. Also, men um, don't have this. Women do. We, we have a specific organ that is simply dedicated for nothing other than our pleasure, and that is the clitoris, right? Like, completely and utterly designed for pleasure. How cool is that? Also, um, the clitoris is non-hormone dependent, meaning that, um, you know, certainly women will experience painful uh, sexual experiences as they enter menopause and the hormones change, the estrogen decreases, the you know, the vagina changes, but the clitoris does not, which means you can continue having orgasms and having pleasure. It just may, may not be penetrative. Um, but that's, I think that's super cool that we have that. In, uh, so... I studied spider monkeys for my PhD, and one of their distinguishing characteristics with the females is that they have an enlarged clitoris, like three or four inches, with a groove on it. And it is not what you think it is. It's really meant as 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 a vehicle to deposit urine. Yes. Which then male spider monkeys can pick up 
pheromones and hormonal cues in terms of whether or not that female is ready to copulate. Yeah. Um, but when you see them hanging in the trees, it looks like a penis dangling between between their legs. Uh. Um, so you can't, when you see that, that's a female, that's not a male. And most primates, you know, humans, females, are able to uh, engage in sex at any point during their cycle. Yes. Right? For all the same reasons you mentioned about the clitoris and hormones. But with a lot of other primates, they don't engage unless they are um, unless they are in estrus and they're estrus. They're, they're yeah. able to to become pregnant, and so they have to have these external characteristics and the biggest, to let people know to, when to they're to ready. let the males know. Okay. And so you see it in chimpanzees and you see it in baboons. You see these red swellings in the in their hind quarters called ischial callosities, and they can be like Google it. You can see yeah. these massive. It looks like somebody's taken like a like a like a. A, a balloon animal and just like formed it into this weird shape and stuck it on the on the bum on the, of, of, a, yeah, of a baboon yeah. or something like that. And it looks incredibly painful, but it is a color, generally red and pink, is not common in in these environments that they live in, in you know, like a jungle forest environment. So it's something that creates that visual cue from a distance, yeah. especially when we talk about baboons that live in kind of open areas. This can be seen from from far away, much further than you'd be able to detect the hormonal changes from through olfactory, yeah. like from from smelling and things. I think like that. evolution is just it's it, cool. Biology and evolution is super but super cool. Everything is driven. Those ischial callosities and those secondary sexual characteristics is all to bring the male of the species together with the female of the species together to produce an offspring. Yeah. Right? Like that's yeah. that's that's the drive of that because that is how well, it's that's the how mammals us, that's how right? mammals that's how mammals reproduce, right? There are different ways to create offspring. You have, you know, asexual rep- reproduction, all those kinds of things. But in sexual reproduction, it's the male and female of the species. That's not to say that other um, partnerships are valid or invalid but that's the only one that's going to produce an offspring biologically yes right yeah and there are lots of ways that our biology drives us together yeah through those overt cues like those yeah callosities and through less overt cues like wearing red lipstick on on a woman right like you know there's a lot of things that are pushing us towards that and and we might want to try and, and say that sex isn't an important part of life or that it should be reserved only for certain aspects. But our, our cultural evolution, our bio, biological evolution has happened a lot longer than our cultural evolution has. And our biology hasn't caught up with the fact that culturally most people are monogamous and they engage right. in these monogamous pair bonds and that's all that they do. Because biologically, that's not what was successful for our species. Right, we wouldn't have gotten here under though no. that that particular no and, and, and particular and, model. And in the in the in the in the higher primates, gorillas are monogamous, um, and and chimpanzees and bonobos are not, and orangutans are solitary, and and um, gibbons are monogamous. The ones that are least genetically related to us are the one are the only one of our of our closest relatives that engage in the same social model that is that quote do, unquote yeah. the norm now it's interesting yeah. I, I think it's been just an interesting um, discussion looking back looking forward <laughs> and and I think really um, you know what we're what we're really just talking about is like I don't know I just feel like you, you know there's so much shame and guilt wrapped up in sexuality and mm. and and um, relationships that like we just don't talk about stuff and mm-hmm. i mean you know like i and i think about esther perel who you know comes out and writes a book about adultery like mm-hmm. nobody talks about this stuff we just walk around with shame and guilt and hurt and all of the stuff and, and that's not stopping and, people from doing it oh no absolutely no <laughs> no no um and 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 i think maybe a discussion centered around you know, maybe recognizing like, hey, you know, maybe you need to think about the fact that like you don't fit within this model mm-hmm. and trying to force a round peg into a square hole like is going to lead to a lot of suffering. Mm-hmm. And OK, so if I don't fit this model, how can I explore these other models mm-hmm. without being hurtful or offensive or derogatory or like patriarchal or, you know, on the flip side, you know, women can certainly behave in certain ways as well so i'm not you know i'm not excluding that but you know i think people could be a lot more happy if they 
had if they spend a little time around self-awareness and then could find somebody that could help them like work through these different ideas and then you know when they approach their relationships talking openly about how they feel it works best for them and Mm -hmm. if their part if the person they're talking to is like i don't like that okay you know on you go to the next person that you know you can feel like you connect with at a level that works with you if you think there's so much so much in our even just look at media if you look at like the the tropes of like a romantic comedy right woman falls in love with man man falls in love with another woman first woman is jealous and you know it's a relationship extinction event like everything has to blow up yeah and if you look at it from a from a non-monogamy standpoint what if the the couple comes together and goes hey you know what I think this other person is interesting and I'd like to get to know them better. Um, it doesn't mean I don't love you and I don't value the relationship that we have, but, you know, we've been together for so long. It seemed like it's not reasonable for me to expect that I'm only going to be attracted to one person for the rest of my life. And, and, and it's not, and this is the thing, it's not a zero-sum game. It doesn't yeah. mean that, it's not like you can, it's not that people are only capable, uh, if you have more than one child, yeah. do you only love one? I mean, we all have our favorites, I guess, right? But if you only have, if you have multiple children, do you only love one child and not love the other ones? Do yeah. you only love one of your parents? I think we have, as humans, the capacity to create social connections with a large number of people. But why is it culturally um, mm. impossible to... To, uh, to to do that around sex. Yeah. Uh, why, why is that such a strange concept mm. that um, you can have... You can love multiple children. You can love both of your parents. Or if you have multiple parents and, you I know... step parents. Step parents. You can love all of these people. But when it comes to your romantic partner, that's it. It's it's one and done. I mean, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be out there that are going to be out there and say, actually, no, I think it's possible to to have those kinds of romantic and, and physical feel feelings. I just like there's no platform for people to be able to have that conversation or even just like explore mm-hmm. the concepts, right? And Without those like, biases yeah, of like, yeah. if, you know, of like, well, if we're talking about non-monogamy, it means that we're all like dirty, dirty swingers or something yeah, like well, that, exactly. right? Like yeah. that there are there are people just like you, just like me, just like your neighbors. Who like, there's there's a lot of people that are doing this. You just don't know them. And I, yeah. and, and I and 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 I don't mean to diminish the struggle that that gay people have had to go through, but it's a similar sort of thing with the acceptance of homosexuality yeah. in the sense that it took people having a brother or a parent or somebody they knew who was gay to show them that gay people aren't weird, strange pedophiles that just want to, you know, do horrible things to people. For enough people to realize, no, they're, 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 they're just normal, they're, regular they're, they're people. normal people they that just, just like, have a, they're just attracted in a different way to they a just different like type of different person. things. Exactly, and and I think with relationship models, I think it's a similar sort of thing. It's going to take a critical mass of people to know people who are in non-traditional relationship models yeah. before it's going to become widely accepted that it's okay, and it might not be for you. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you have to go and do it if somebody yeah. else is doing it. Right. Right? Yeah. It's going to take time. And I think the conversations that people like Chris Ryan and Sex at Dawn, um, Esther Perel, um, Tristan Terramino, um, Dan Savage, podcasters and authors that are in this sex and relationship sphere, bringing out, talking about it, having these con- conversations to help people understand that you're right, that they're not alone. Not alone. That yeah. if they feel this way about about a relationship model, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily damaged or, or yeah. broken or, yeah. you know, they're evil or whatever their whatever guilt labels. and shame is. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think having platforms and venues to have these open discussions without judgment are really important. And I think that uh, especially when you talk about around mental health and therapy and counselors, being able to have people that you can talk to that have professional training that aren't going to bring in their own personal bias Mm. uh, around relationship models when you come to them. Because too often, I've seen this happen in in my own circles where, you know, there are two people who are interested in doing something, you know, they're having a problem in their relationship. And And they want to open it. They open it up and they're talking to a counselor and the counselor is saying, well, the problem is not that you guys have a problem. The problem is is that you're having an open relationship and you just need to focus on the two of you, Mm. which might be the right strategy for some people. people, But 
in that moment, those people are being told what you're doing is wrong yeah, and that's yeah, the yeah, root yeah. of your problem yeah. and not that to address the other sorts of issues that maybe they got together when they were 16 years old and they're now in their 40s and they're, you know, two, three decades later are different people yeah. than they were in their teens yeah. with different desires, different needs, different wants and their relationship model as it stands can't. Doesn't give them the freedom and like... If they wanted to explore different ways, well, how do they begin to have yep. conversations with each other so that they stay respectful yeah. to each other? I think I think yeah. that when we talk about, or when I talk about open relationships, I'm very clear to distinguish between consensual non-monogamy, right. which is with the understanding and permission is a weird word, but just where nothing is hidden, yeah. nobody is yeah. being lied to, yeah. versus non-consensual non-monogamy, which would be things like affairs and, and you know, cheating yeah, and adultery. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think too many people will equate those two things and say all non-monogamy is cheating yeah. and that there is a way. And I think when you go into it with just those two paths, then you can explore all those different varieties of consensual non-monogamy, uh, all the different flavors that exist out there versus, you know, it's just if you're non-monogamous, you're cheating on your spouse. Well, that's, right. And that is non-monogamy, but that's that's not consensual non-monogamy. Yeah. That's not yeah. consensual. Somebody doesn't know that that's it, happening, it, right? Right, right. It, there hasn't been a discussion yes. centered around Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting and, like I said, tying it back to, you know, having the anthropology study mm -hmm. it really allows like I, you know i wouldn't just not normally have a conversation with anybody but <laughs> it, it, about it but yeah. it's just cool to be able to have a conversation around it and be like okay like here are you know some different facts and like yep. here's how other people do it and like it's cool either way and and, and this is not a, a like Consensual non-monogamy is not a panacea for the problems in your relationship. Right. It's not they a, can, yeah. It can magnify the problems if it's done incorrectly. Yeah. And I think that anybody that is interested in exploring this needs to work on their communication skills first and foremost with their yeah. partner. Yeah. You, uh, the people that practice consensual non-monogamy successfully spend way more time communicating with their partner about everything not uh, like about you know, doing the dishes and laundry and stuff I, yeah but, what i like uh, what i don't like what i'm comfortable you, you with, have what to I'm be you have to be with. upfront yeah. and honest and it has to be these opinions and feelings have to be accepted without judgment yeah you know you can't it, so it's tricky for a lot of people particularly people who have been in monogamous relationships where there has been a lot of non-consensual monogamy being practiced so a lot of cheating and adultery yeah. that's been going on it's scary to be able to come out to your partner and say this is what i feel yeah. this is what i need and you put yourself you open yourself up to a lot of potential danger and risk like yeah. you, this yeah. person that you're with could say i'm out i'm done yeah or could use that information against you and i think there's a lot of people i don't know what it's like here in, in canada but in the u.s um, there's a lot of people that remain closeted about their non-monogamy if there are children involved because their uh, ex-spouse could take them to family court and could use that that um, you know, information against them, that yeah. that that morality judgment on mm. what consensual non-monogamy is against them and have and there's been multiple cases where where a parent has lost custody of their child because they're polyamorous and the courts haven't understood what that what that means and and believe then that the other mm. partner the other parent is is the is the is the more appropriate caregiver so we're a long way there's a there's a lot of conversation a lot of discussion before the issues around shame and guilt with sexualities and different types yeah. of sexuality and different sexual preferences before our, I mean, never mind our biology catching up, even just our laws catching up to the reality of different relationship models. And I've always kind of approached it as like, if the love of, of like when we talk about kids, if the love of two parents is better than, I think everybody would agree that having two parents in a household, two two functioning parents that are, are in a good relationship and, and are, are, are good parents together yes. are better than just having uh, one parent. Well, if two parents are better than one parent, then how is more people loving a child 
going to be worse yeah. than only having two parents. Well, I mean, there's a saying, it takes a village to raise a child. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm certain that saying has come from something, especially if we're looking at our nomadic <laughs> tribes and <laughs> etc. right? There like, might be a subtext to that. Yeah, like yeah. the families were usually, like, you know, in some groups, it was the families that raised yeah. the child, right? Yeah. That, you know, the father... Well, well, we, we have that now. We, yeah. have, we have aunts and uncles and grandparents that oftentimes help people raise children, yeah. right? So we already have, but, but there's a re, there's a genetic relatedness there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it's it's strange for a lot of people to think, and I mean, if you talk to um, people who are polyamorous, and polyamory means many loves. It's yes. different than polygamy, which a lot of okay. people conflate. Uh, polygamy is, is when you think of like, you know, like a Mormon sect in Utah where there's like, sister wives and stuff like right, that. Right, okay. That's, that's one man, multiple females. Uh, okay. There's a, There's an opposite of that, which is called polyandry, where it's one woman and lots of males. Man, okay. But polyamory just means many loves. And basically, it just means that there are many relationships that are, and there's different ways to practice it, but generally speaking, they're all kind of considered on an even playing field. So there, you'll have... You'll have primaries and secondaries, or everybody is a metamorph. They're all on the same field. But but the point is, is, if you talk to people that have polyamorous relationships where there are children involved, you know, the, going back to that society in in South America that believes like if you want the best hunter, you need to have sex with the best hunter. If you want somebody who's really good at building a house, so in a polyamorous situation, you know, one parent is very mechanically inclined and can pass those skills on to even if they're not genetically related yeah. to the child they pass those skills another one is academically inclined or physically inclined all these sorts of things and now this child gets the benefit of multiple parents who who and, multiple caregivers who love them yes and pass on, and then you have that whole village raising a child right and and i think for it for some people it's going to be an excellent way to um, have a family and for other people it's not going to work it's not going to work at all yeah but the point is is if it doesn't work for you don't do don't, it well yeah right yeah. just find what works for how you how do you yeah do yeah. what works for you yeah right yeah. and don't worry what other people are doing but also don't give them a hard time if it's not the way that you would do it right, right. yeah um i think that's a good message just in general right I, I, just across the board <laughs> right i think there's there's a lot of you know there's a lot of discussion and stuff happening yeah. there out there in the social media world and all of that but that's that's a topic for another day the bottom line is do you and uh yeah. you know live your life in the way that is right for yep. for you um but understand that other people live differently mm -hmm. and it's not right or wrong it's just different it's just different that's, that's exactly it. it yeah yeah I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, and, thanks. Uh, it was really good. I enjoyed I, it too. I, I want to, you know, thank you for taking the time to My come pleasure. and talk about this controversial, uh, you know, subject matter with me. <laughs> and, um, you know, we'll, we'll see um, if there's going to be a, you know, a round two discussion around uh, something oh, we, related. We've just scratched the surface, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, Thank you again, and thank you to our listeners. Um, of course, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, uh, do so. And this way, all the new episodes will come straight to your phone or any other smart tablet, etc. Um, and bye for now. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.